The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Mike. Mike's going to tell us where and where he was born. He's going to describe what it was like where he grew up, the schools he went to, and the education that he received. So, Mike, if you can tell us where and when you were born. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming, uh, for letting me come on your broadcast. Uh, you know, I am on the opposite side of the world from you right now on the West Coast of California. Um, but I was born in Brooklyn. I was raised in Queens. Eventually, I moved to the Upper East Side of Manhattan and then out to San Francisco. Um, went to Catholic grammar school, Catholic high school, and then got a degree in psychology um, and, you know, how I was raised, I can tell you this, it was beautiful. It was all immigrants. I'm from a town called Elmhurst, which a number of years ago, the New York Times said was the most diverse town on the planet. Uh, so lots of immigrants, lots of children. So, you know, you would come out, uh, after school and play with everybody and uh, you know you'd have mothers coming outside and yelling at their children to come on in it's dinner and you didn't <laughs> want to come in because you were having such a good time so I had a beautiful childhood so what was your elementary school like because I guess you won't won't remember too much about your kindergarten did you go to kindergarten I did I did I went to a public school for kindergarten um and my elementary school was uh, a lot of fun. Uh, you know, both my parents had a sixth grade education, right? Because they're from Dublin, Ireland. They came over in 59. So I, I consider it a privilege being in an immigrant household uh, without credit cards. You know, back then people didn't have credit cards, mm -hmm. didn't rely on credit cards. So there really was no safety net. It was just work, 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 work. And the children that were a part of that whole thing were drilled into them that life is what you make it, that there's going to be nobody to save you, that you might, you know, I started working, I was 12 years old. I haven't stopped. And it's a good thing. <laughs> Work is a beautiful thing. It gives you self-confidence. Uh, it, it, it exposes you to other people, right, that you wouldn't have the opportunity to get to know and, and work together towards a common goal, right? Which mm. is a beautiful thing. So it was, it was a wonderful way. I, I, I have no regrets about my childhood. It was just beautiful. So in elementary school then, you said it was the most diverse, um, with the, the most amount of immigrants around. So... How many different friends did you have from different countries and where did they come from? How did you communicate with them? What was the common language? English. Uh, you know, everybody spoke English uh, mm -hmm. for the most part. Um, and they, you know, they were from everywhere. You name it. Like they were represented and it really didn't matter where you were from. It The only thing that really mattered is how hard you could hit the baseball. Right. Were you going to help me on my baseball team to win? Right. Could you throw me a football so I could catch it and we could score points? 
That's really, were you funny? Right? The most popular kids on my block were the funniest kids. Look, it's, you know, there's a lot of talk and work around the law of attraction. And, you know, especially in, in Irish culture, the funniest person is the most popular person, is the person that people seek out, right? Not the person who's mad at the world and blah, blah. <laughs> nobody wants that guy, right? And not the macho man with the muscles and the hair chest yeah. and all that stuff. No, no. <laughs> can you make me laugh? Yes, I want to be with you. When when can you come around? Right. So this is this is um in Queens then. So What's Queens like? I mean, is it a really built-up area? Is everybody living in sort of tenement buildings? and Or, or is it sort of a leafy sort of suburb? Um, so it, it has changed since I left. Um, but it's still, it's still a mix of single-family housing and big apartment buildings. And every day it gets bigger and bigger and bigger uh, because it's very close to Manhattan, right? Um and, you know, where everybody goes into work in Manhattan is, is nothing but obviously high rises. Um, but it's uh, wonderful food. Mm. Great food uh, from everywhere. You know, you can pick a cuisine and it's it's the best of the best. Yeah. Did you ever bump into um, Eddie Murphy when he was there? You know, it's funny you bring up Eddie Murphy. Um on a couple of levels. Number one, his movie Coming to America, he took over a Wendy's and, and turned it into whatever the name of that place where he worked fast food restaurant in the movie. So for a month, our Wendy's McDowell's. was there. What's that? <laughs> McDowell's. McDowell's, yes. So that was in my hometown. The other thing was um, I, got, I got a chance to open for Eddie Murphy at the comic strip when I was doing stand-up comedy. Uh, when I was a young man, and that was a big thrill for me, because at the time he was the he was the top, uh, mm. so that was very cool. And did you go into the barber shop there? Oh, that that was just a set, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I thought everybody in Queens got a haircut there. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on then, so. So you managed to scrape through elementary school. And what about your junior high? What was that like? Well, you know, my elementary school was also junior high. So so in America, well, or if you go to the Catholic school system, it's grade one through eight. And then uh, the, the Catholic high school system is uh, grade nine through 12. So um, I was forced to go to an all-boy Catholic school. I wanted to go to the co-ed school with beautiful girls, um, <laughs> but that was not an option on the table. Um, and I'm actually glad that I went to the place where I was forced to go, Archbishop Malloy, uh, because being in an all-boy environment, I could develop who I was supposed to be with any, without any worried about, oh, what are the girls going to think about what I'm saying right now or how I'm acting, right? So it allowed me to have full personality development. It was a very rigorous academic school. Um, 
there was no, you know, I, I hear stories about or in movies like cutting class and smoking. None of that. I never cut one class. It was literally impossible. Um, you were with very bright people. Um, and again, you know, my parents never stopped looking at my grades, knowing what I was doing. There was no, there was no quarter. There was no relief. There was corporal punishment mm. and it was, you are going to be a success. There is no left or right. It's going to go right down the middle. And it was good. I was very blessed as a result of that. Um, I got into one of the top engineering schools in the world, Georgia Tech. I studied electrical engineering my first year of college, um, but I didn't want to uh, be an engineer. I wanted to know about the human mind. I wanted well, to know. On, hang on, hang on. You're racing yeah. ahead a little bit now. Okay. I want to. I want to know a little bit, a bit more about your high school. Uh huh. I mean, was, was it run by nuns? So it was uh, run by the priest. Maris Brothers. The Maris Brothers are a teaching order that was started by St. Marcelin Champagnat back in the 1700s. Um, and there were nuns there as well, but uh, mostly lay people. But the brothers mm. lived on the third floor of the building. Um, and they took a vow of poverty and chastity. Um, and they were wonderful gentlemen, uh, funny, hardworking. It was, it, I literally am so blessed as a result that I could be in that culture and environment for success later on in life. You said there was a bit of punishment going on. Was that the cane at the time? Did they, did they have the cane? I don't know whether they had the cane in America. We yeah. certainly had it when I was a lad. So there was no cane. <laughs> But I remember, so we had, we were a top academic school and we were a top athletic school. I swam and I ran track for four years. We always won the city championships for track. And we had very famous people that went on to be NBA superstars that went to my school. And we had a very famous coach, Coach Jack Curran, who taught these, they, where we would get the best of New York basketball stars because they wanted to be coached under Jack Curran. But I remember my freshman year, my friend Peter McCarthy uh, said something to Jack Curran. He also taught physical education. And Jack Curran reared back like he was doing a golf swing and just whoosh, right across the face. And it wasn't that Peter said anything that rude. It was just that there could be no challenging authority. You never did that again. Now, I'm not saying that that's the right course of action. You know, I have two wonderful kids. I've never hit them. I never will hit them. And I'm not saying that that needs to be a part of curriculum. But what I am describing is how I went to school in a different time. Yeah. I think, I think all of us come from a different time. Mm -hmm. I think that's what this is all about, is, is recording our time mm -hmm. for future generations. Mm -hmm. So let's move on then. Let's let's go to uh, you've done your junior high high school. So you kept, you carried on. It was it the same school or was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four years of high school, no junior high school, and uh, it was great. Uh, it best some of the best times of my life. It was really, mm. you know, wasn't there wasn't any money. 
I mean, I worked through high school. You know, I had pocket money. Yeah. Um, but you didn't, you know, I look, I was a train ride. I could walk to the New York City subway system, which was just a, a few blocks away, get on a train, go into Manhattan and do whatever I wanted and, and meet whoever I wanted. And, you know, to be exposed to the best art, the best music, uh, the best pizza in the world. Uh, and the eighties were great. You know, I, I left high school mm -hmm. in 1985. So you had, you know, I loved the English new wave music. That was my favorite was, uh, you know, the Smiths new order, uh, mm -hmm. you know, whatever was new wave at that time, I loved it. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a lot of fun. And, you know, unlike today where you have two, major corporations that control all the music, at least in America, you had all of these new artists because there was a law against monopolizing radio and television channels. So mm -hmm. you had all of these mom and pop stations all across America that could choose whatever music they wanted to put on. So you had all of this diversity in music. So it was a lot of fun to see, oh, what's the new music coming out this week? And it wasn't, you know, boy bands didn't come into effect really till the early 90s when our laws had changed, when you could have uh, two major radio station companies own all the music. So that was, that was yeah. a lot of the difference as well. So just, just, so you did some track and field and, and swimming. Mm -hmm. So did you have a big sports pitch? Did, did you have, a, because I mean, I guess New York is and Queens and, and all around there is fairly well built up. So do you have green spaces other than sort of Central Park? So we had a, we had a track, but it was a fifth of a mile track versus a quarter mile track. So because of that, we couldn't have an American football team it just wasn't big enough that that interior space around the track but there are plenty of parks that you know when i used to run cross country we would just you know run to different parks and stuff like that um so i didn't miss out on anything mm. okay then so you got to the end of, of, of your high school and you graduated and you went off to university or college mm -hmm. so Tell us a bit about that college and the course you was you were on. Sure. So I went to Georgia Institute of Technology, um, and they're known for their engineering. Uh, so I studied electrical engineering for a year, and I just didn't feel it. I just I was like, this really isn't for me. I I, I am fascinated with how people think. Why do they? behave in a certain manner and other people don't what it what motivates them what are the secrets to happiness and so i went back to new york and i went to a top uh school in terms of psychology queen's college and i got my degree in psychology and was funny a lot of people don't know this is that in, you know, 
from, let's say, 86. I graduated in uh, 1990. Um, positive psychology didn't come into this, the uh, teaching of psychology until 1999, Dr. Martin Seligman. Um, before, before that, it was all abnormal psychology. What, what all of the research on is why people are so messed up as opposed to what people can do to live a successful life. And mm -hmm. the whole time I kept waiting, like, like, when, like when, when are they gonna get to the course curriculum that is going to show what you need to do in order to be successful versus how messed up we are. And it never came. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've become good friends with a, with, with a top psychologist, uh, Dr. Fred Luskin. And he's the author of Forgive for Good, Forgive for Life. And when I was writing my first book, I was reading the San Francisco Chronicle, the, the local newspaper. The, the top course at Stanford University was the happiness course. It was the most difficult to get into. Um, and he was one of the teachers, he and director of wellness, uh, Carol Protofsky, who's also become a good friend of mine. And so I called him up and I said, look, I said, I, I've, I've got to interview you for my book. And it turns out we're both from New York. Uh, so he's like, oh, let's have Chinese food. And I'm like, no, you know, of course, let's go. So we went <laughs> to Palo Alto and uh, I was telling him all of this. And he said, oh, Mike, he goes, uh, back then we were the high priests of disorder. You know, it's just like, <laughs> come to me and I will tell you how messed up you are. I won't give you really a path to success. I can tell you exactly what's wrong with you. So when, when you left the uh, Georgia College, did you have enough sort of points to be able to go over? To well, you know, I had, I had courses that, that transferred, you know, that transferred over. But, uh, you know. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was a lot easier. Let me tell you something. Psychology is a lot easier than electrical engineering. You <laughs> cannot, you cannot fudge electrical engineering. There is mm -hmm. no, well, maybe, you know, in, you know, in the room, in the realm of psychology, well, you could see it this way. You could see it that way. Electrical engineering is yes or no, right or wrong. You can't fudge it. It'll either go bang or it'll work. Yes, you'll either <laughs> die or you'll have success. Yeah. So psychology, I mean, that, that that is a massive, massive variation on what can happen with different people, different mindsets, a whole host of things to try and sort out. I guess. And, and yes, and also in in psychology, they don't tell you this, but the replication rate of scientific research that they that they bring out is very difficult to replicate. Uh, you know, that's why it's like one day they say this, and the next day they say that. You know, mm. it's just very hard to prove because we're dealing with uh, human behavior and emotion. Um. So it's not a truly exact science like the physical sciences. Yeah. So you, you, you've gone from Georgia, you've come back to Queens. So 
obviously, did you move in back in with your parents? Did you? I did. So you're saving money on 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 digs mm-hmm. or lodgings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so how was that sort of going home every day? Did did you did you get the the same sort of you got you got to push on? What did what did your parents think about changing courses like that? Well, my mother had passed away when I was seventeen, so. I can tell you this, she would not have been happy with that because my my second older sister was an electrical engineer from Georgia Tech. And she was making really good money working for Motorola at the age of 21. My, my second older sister is a genius. Um, so she wouldn't have been happy with that. Uh, but my father just wanted me to be able to provide for myself. I remember, now my dad passed away back in uh, December of 2018. But when I moved out to California when I was 27, you know, we would have wonderful conversations. uh, And he would always say to me, he goes, I'm just so happy, Mike. You went out there, you know, without a lot of money and you made it. He just was just so taken with the fact that I never had to ask him for money in my life and that I came out to California not knowing one person and I got married to an amazing woman, two beautiful children, own a couple of houses, my own business. Uh, he just he just thought that was the best. That, that's all he ever wanted from me is to mm. be able to provide for myself. So let's look at uh, how you got there then. So you completed sort of the first year electrical. You changed to four years in Queens. What did you do? What was the first job you had when you graduated from, from college? That's a wonderful question. I graduated on the Saturday. On the Sunday... I went back to the job that I had for the last three years in Times Square, right by Duffy Square, where they sell the tickets, the world famous TIX, to Tony Roma's, a place for ribs. And I put my name tag, Mike, back on my maroon and gray striped shirt. So I own a wealth management company. And for years, you know, when I worked for Merrill Lynch, I would say to my, you know, people that sat across from me for the first time, I would say one day, if things work out, and my kids want to go through with my dream, my children will be working for you. Because it's always been my goal to have a family business that my kids could step into, if that's what they wanted to do with their life so that they wouldn't have to graduate from college and put a name tag on their shirt. So you put your name tag on and you started back where where you'd been working. So how long was it before you moved on? Let's see. I worked, so I got out of school, let's, let's call it June. And then November, I got my first real corporate job 
with Payne Weber, which is now UBS, as a sales assistant or secretary, let's call it. And I learned the business of wealth management um, in Manhattan, across the street from Radio City Music Hall on the 40th floor. And uh, it was our flagship office. And um, I didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond. I had never taken one business class. And um, it was very eye-opening. And I fell in love with it. And I'm still in love with it to this day. Uh, it is the greatest way that people can set themselves free financially if they do the right thing. So how, how come you went working for a company like that with your degree that was in um, psychology? So what got you into sales? Could you... Well, it wasn't sales at that time. It was support. But here's, I, I, I went to a crossroads. I had a very famous mentor in psychology at that time at Queens College, very well-regarded psychologist. And he said to me, Mike, you have what it takes to be a great psychologist. You know, I'm going to recommend that you go into our PhD program. And I said, Dr. Caputo, I said, I, I appreciate that, but I don't want to listen to people's problems for the rest of my life. I don't want to start at nine in the morning, listen to people's problems till 10, have some coffee, listen to some people's problems from 10 to 11, from 12 to one, from two to three. That, that is not my dream life. <laughs> for the rest of my life, listening to people's problems. So I became a stockbroker and now I listen to people's problems. <laughs> so, 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 so go through four years of, of learning to be a psychologist and then just mugged it off, basically. Well, yeah, but to be honest with you, a degree in psychology was the greatest degree I could get to do what I've done for the last 30 years because mm. everything about the market is psychological. The market moves on fear and greed, fear and greed. Right now we're in fear. Russia has invaded Ukraine, yeah. a European war for the first time since World War II for the most part. So the market sells off. But what does that mean in terms of the real price of stocks? Does that mean that you should be selling? You know, you want to buy when people are afraid. And that's the hardest thing to do. It's terribly difficult to buy when Russia's invading Ukraine, because who knows where they're going to go after that? There is that to it. It is a bit of a concern at the moment, that situation that we're in. Um, it's... I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing the, the hard effects of that with the price of fuel and uh, electric and, and gas bills going through the roof at the moment here in England, which is, I mean, it's it just beggars belief. We, 
we've got a source a day 185 for a litre of diesel. I mean, that's criminal. That's profiteering on the, the, the oil companies. But there's not an awful lot we can do about it. And our, and our gas bill's going up all because of um, Russia providing mainly Germany with, with their gas, but we're getting gas from elsewhere. So from, from our perspective, we're seeing it hard from that fear of the markets and the greed from the markets. So, yeah, <laughs> that's the reality of it. Yeah. And the thing is, again, I've, I've been seeing this for 30 years every single day. So, you know, it's, and, and that's why I'll always have a career because people need wise counsel. People need somebody with experience to say, you know what? This isn't the first time we've had bad news. Um, and with inflation so high, the bank isn't paying you any interest. So what do you do to keep up with inflation? You need to diversify. But it's hard to diversify when you open up, when you turn on the television, you open up your laptop and you see such terrible things go on. Mm. But that's the, that's the history of man. Yeah. It's gone on for, for centuries. Mm -hmm. So let's, uh, let's go back to, you, you, you started in this, this company on the, on the 42nd floor, was it? 40th floor. 40th floor. So how long were you in that job, learning the ropes? Being a secretary? Uh, so I was in, I was a sales assistant uh, with Payne Weber, and then I moved to California, got a job at Payne Weber on 100 California Street um, as a sales assistant. And then I believe it was 1996, I went and I became a financial advisor with Citicorp Investment Services. Um, in Oakland, you had asked me, am I, am I near Oakland? Mm. So that was, uh, that was the first place where I helped people one-to-one -one, uh, make a difference in their financial lives. Mm. Uh, and that was fun. That was great. Were the Oakland Raiders still there or they have been sold off by then and shifted somewhere else? So if, if my memory serves correctly, they came back up from L.A. in either 94 or 95. There were a few years where, well, there was one year I had season tickets for the Raiders and my friend uh, worked for Wells Fargo and he had season tickets for the Raiders a few years in a row and I was a single man and I used to love going to the Raider games. So much fun. Just, it was like a circus, mm. you know, and everybody was friendly to you as long as you were wearing the silver and black, right? <laughs> as long as you had something that said Raiders on you, but woe the day if you were wearing the visiting team's colors, <laughs> I can't even imagine. Um, so it was like a big, it was like a big family, 
you know, and um, just so much fun. And back then, I'm talking around uh, 97 to 2000, you know, the Raiders were winning. So, of course, that makes a lot of difference as well. So did you have any split loyalties if the, the Jets or the Giants came into town? You just said a word that makes my heart swell like the Grinch. You know, at the end of the Grinch, when his, when his heart goes so big, it busts the meter. The New York Jets, baby, always my first love, <laughs> unfortunately. Now, if you, Tim, were to cut me open, I'm 99% scar tissue as a result <laughs> of being a New York Jets fan. My, my godfather was a New York City garbage man who had won two tickets to see Joe Namath and the Jets in 1974. I was born in 1967, so I was seven years old. And that's when the heroin went into my arm. I saw Broadway Joe at Shea Stadium, and that was <laughs> it. I became a New York Jets fan, and it's been misery ever since. <laughs> Brilliant. So... Bring us up to date. So you, 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 when did when did you get when did you get your own business? When did you set out on your own? So that was March of 2018. Um, I was a senior vice president at Merrill Lynch. Had the corner office, top producer, and I just I just knew that I could do a better job being the captain of my own ship, and. I, I left. It was literally the greatest day of my life. I opened up Happiness Wealth Management because I think that the first question that somebody should be asked when they're meeting you for the first time as a financial advisor is what makes you happy and how can we get more of that? Because money is a tool. It is not mm -hmm. the end all. It is not to be worshipped and idolized. It is simply a tool. So, uh, you know, we come up with plans that make our clients happy. Um, you know, sometimes people just don't want to have the risk of, of having money in the stock market. And that's fine. There's other alternatives, right? They just wouldn't be able to sleep at night if they knew that they could lose 15, 20% that year in the market. And that's fine. That's not for you. That's for other people. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been four years and uh, it's just been an absolute joy. Brilliant. So it's all worked out then. It has. It's, it's a wonderful fairy tale beginning. I'm not going to say ending. Uh, no. And every day I come in, I walk to work. My office is three blocks away from my house. What? You walk in California? Yeah. No, people don't walk in California. Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> I live in a beautiful little town uh, and the weather is just gorgeous. You know, in the 1950s, the U.S. government sent out scientists all around the country to find out who had the best weather. Very close to my town, uh, to the south is a town called Redwood City. And when you go to Redwood City, there's a big wrought iron arch. And it says Redwood City, climate best by government test. So 
I'm just a few blocks away from the best weather in America. Yeah, so it never rains in Southern California, apparently. Yeah, that's... <laughs> it, yeah, we, we do have drought. Now, it's not as warm as Southern California. Um, and by the way, do you do you golf at all, Tim? I have played golf uh, in my life. I used to play a bit of golf uh, a while back. Um, I haven't been able to play recently because of uh, I've got uh, <laughs> a few medical problems going under underneath this gorgeous exterior. There's an absolute train wreck going on at the moment. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> but yeah, once yeah, I'll, I'll get back and have a, a bash round uh -huh. occasionally. Yeah, yeah I've got a bash in the, in, in, the, in the toy shed. It's it's um, you know, my father was always on me to play golf. And I said, you know, I just have no interest in putting a ball in a hole. And well, it was a good walk. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then my sister called me up at the beginning of COVID and she says, Mike, you know, I'm settling daddy's estate and you know, there's $2,500 left over. I'm going to be sending you a check. And I said, Roisin, you know, I'm looking at Facebook and the only people that seem to be happy of my friends all around the world are my golfing friends. And, you know, I, I'm thinking about getting a set of clubs with this money. I don't want it to just go into my checking account and pay for the water bill or the electricity bill. And she says, oh, Michael, daddy would be so happy with that because, you know, he loved to golf and he was a sharpshooter, you know. In the yeah. local course, it'd be like, oh, you know, if we're having a tournament, you got to get Duffy down there. And he would go to it like it, he loved it. And I said, OK, I said, you know what? When I hang up the phone, I'm going to go and I'm going to go get a set of clubs. And that was a great decision. I've actually joined a, a golf club here. Uh, it was designed in 1915 by Dr. Alistair McKenzie, who designed Augusta and Cypress Point. Um, and, uh, and some other courses in Australia and Venezuela. Um, and it's, it's honestly, you don't need therapy if you, if you're a member of a great golf course, because you're out there amongst the trees, you see yeah. God's handiwork with the sun <laughs> dappling through the pines and the eucalyptus. And where I live, you can golf all year round. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite a joy. Yeah. Get out and go and spoil a good walk by bashing a ball around. <laughs> Love it. You know, the social, the, to me, I don't even keep score. What is the point? I'm 54 years old. I'm never going to make it to the tour. I love the social aspect of it, especially yeah. during COVID, right? Where we lost that for two years. I didn't. Mm. So I could take my friends out and uh, and meet new people, you know, and and learn new things. And it was it just it's just been a glorious hobby to adopt. And I really can't stress enough for folks that are on the fence, if they're thinking about maybe golfing, you can golf till your arms fall off. It's an old man sport. Yeah, it's a great sport. So I had a a tailor-made set of ping golf clubs made for me and it transformed my game mm -hmm. um, 
unfortunately um <laughs> when we when we moved from berlin uh, back to northern ireland i dropped a load of stuff off at my dad's and his business was struggling at the time and the uh the bailiffs came around and had the golf clubs away. Oh no! So, oh, I'm sorry. Tim. Yeah, I was I was gutted at the time, but I've never been able to replace those particular clubs. But uh, I I have got a set of bats hung up in a in the toy shed. So once I sort out these little problems, then I'll, I'll get out and have a wander around and bash a ball about. Nice. <laughs> I wish you the best of luck with that. I, I wish you a speedy recovery so that you can golf. Yes. <laughs> so, I'm seeing a surgeon in a few weeks' time, so see what he says. Uh, and if he says, yeah, you can have a new one, we'll go and get a new hip, and then we should be giggling like a little school kid after that. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> so, Mike, tell me a little bit about your um, your comedy tour. So I did stand-up comedy from the age of 19 to the age of 27 when I moved out here to San Francisco. There was no, out here on the West Coast, there's no comedy scene. I, I did perform a couple of times. And then sometimes in life you have this dream and then like a balloon, it just deflates. It's not important mm. to you anymore. And at, at that time, I got very serious about becoming a, you know, financial advisor. Um, so I, I didn't, because there was no scene and everything like that. Now in New York City, I had great friends. I was performing regularly at the comic strip where Jerry Seinfeld started, where a number of very famous comedians started and, and still perform to this day. It's still there. Um, and I, you know, that was that was my dream. Uh, I performed three to four times a week um, at different clubs all around New York City and meeting people and making people laugh. That's a real drug. That's, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that's, you know, I love making people happy. That's just, you know, the purpose of my life, Tim, is to help other people get happier. Period. End of story. You can put that on my gravestone. Nothing yeah. gives me greater joy than to make somebody laugh or to make somebody smile. A thousand years ago, St. Augustine said, it is in giving that we receive. Yeah. Fantastic. So there you have it. That's brought us up to speed then. <laughs> so, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the, the program. Well, Tim, I want to thank you. This has been a very... I, I, I go on a lot of podcasts. I do a lot of public speaking all around the world. At the end of all my public speaking, I always give Q&A. And I've done a lot of podcasts and no one has ever done this format before. So this is an incredibly unique uh, way for me to document my past. So I want to thank you very much. This has been a wonderful exercise for me. Thank you very much. So I... Uh, Hopefully other people will pick up this format and, and there'll be a legacy for, for generations to come. And that's that's why I do it. Yeah, well, listen, I, I give you high praise and high marks. This has been a lot of fun. And I think it was, uh, I think it's very effective. I think if you have somebody successful, I think it's very important to go back and trace where they came from. 
and 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 yeah. what how they were affected when they were younger thank you very much the tim hill podcasts ordinary people's extraordinary stories <laughs> <laughs>